We have a fun and buzzy interview this week with Dr. John Whelan of the Tech Transfer Office of Trinity College Dublin. John's an experienced entrepreneur and also experienced at commercialising university research. Uh, you're really going to enjoy this interview. We find out things about quantum computing, about the Collins Whelan startup success prediction model, which is a bit of fun, why Star Trek was the ideal startup team, and also it turned out that my MBA isn't everything it's cracked up to be. So listen on and enjoy. I'm sure you'll learn something from this. This podcast is sponsored by Netzer Digital Onboarding. During these times of COVID and falling sales, digital onboarding is the answer to new customer acquisition. If you are a telco, an MVNO, or an eSIM provider, we have the ideal cloud-delivered solution for you. You can onboard your new customers or business account customers remotely at a fraction of your normal onboarding costs. The Netzer Digital Onboarding Solution will ensure your customer onboarding experience is easy and painless. We'll integrate with your BSS, OSS systems and with Salesforce, and we meet all regulatory requirements. Contact pat.flynn at netzer.com so we can understand your issues and provide you with the best solution. This week on the podcast, I'm delighted to have John Whelan, who's an experienced entrepreneur who went to the dark side, John, maybe. I don't know if that's really fair, but anyway. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He is case (laughs) transfer manager in Trinity College, Dublin. Plays both sides. He's both a poacher and a gamekeeper, you know. (laughs) Oh, well, he knows how this game is played, John. So welcome yeah, to the well, I was. I mean, I have to I have to be careful for conflict of interest that I don't I can't play uh, poacher anymore, you know. No, but uh, what I mean was you know you know the yeah, game. Yeah, the I, game don't, no, no. I don't know. I know it's it's good. Yeah, no, I did try my hand. Yeah, thanks. I'm delighted to have a chat with you. I've known you for years, and you know, as we know, we had the same venture capitalists VC who invested us back in the days in the early noughties executive venture partners i raised money twice back in the day uh, you know around a million which in those days was significant enough still is i guess but i never had an exit so vcs lost money but you know we paid all our bills and you know didn't succeed the the one where we kind of hit the goal hit the post on the goal where we always we say we hit the bar my co-founder was from limerick and we said we hit the bar was the in the in the betting side, we had we had a, a startup called Betfair Betmart, which was even a better name than Betfair, but it yeah, was launched yeah. before Betfair, but it was exchange traded betting that raised money quite easily in London. We went to Ireland around all the VCs in Ireland. They all went, yeah, yeah, that's kind of interesting. But in London, we had two VCs bidding against each other, so so that was great. We learned a lot, and then the dot com bubble burst, and you know the VC came back and said, "Where are your revenues?" Yeah. You know, and our revenues were about 200 pounds a month you know, <laughs> because we were just taking a commission on yeah on the but people were lodging money when you see people lodging my lesson from that was strangers that we never knew were lodging thousands of pounds onto our into our platform and if people are doing that you've got something i don't care what it is yeah absolutely you know, i mean anyway that kind of branched when that kind of wound down we kind of went into consultancies me and some of the guys and we started doing with what stuff at Hutchison 3 in the UK when they just got their licenses for 
3G, God, I can't even remember. Yeah. <laughs> it was 3G, it's that long ago. That uh, seems so exciting, didn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was, but the handsets couldn't match it. So we did a lot of consultancy work for them. And then we developed a product around multimedia messaging. Remember MMS, it's still yeah, there. Yeah. And uh, can we sold that into Vodafone and we sold it into O2 in Ireland, but we never got that third international client. We came very close with Orange in Belgium, and we did get a small deal with Orange in Portugal, but, you know, we never made that step. You know, the third client is kind of hard to get outside of your own country, but that, that was great as well. But then I worked in Vodafone for a while as a consultant, and then I saw this job advertised. I think it was in the paper. Jesus, was it? Back in the day in Trinity for, uh, you know, case manager of, for IT and I had experience trying to deal with universities back in the day. And it was very frustrating because, you know, the research was not aligned with what Irish startups wanted or what Irish industry wanted. Yeah. Forfoss had had a report out back around that time in the early noughties that kind of highlighted that in a nice graphic, you know, in telecoms, where it showed where all the research in Ireland and telecoms was really fundamental kind of file layer, physical layer, radio layer. Mm-hmm. And all the companies, great companies in Ireland were succeeding in, you know, SMS and applications and, and content. Yeah, There was no, and there was no connection. So mm. uh, I think, but that's changed a lot since then. Yeah. So delighted. It's my job. I love my job. Jeez. I'd say it's a very interesting job, John, you know, it's because yeah. it's, it's at the start when I said, Poacher and Gamekeeper. What I mean is you understand both the private startup side and also the academic side. And they're different. They're, they're very different cultures. I, I've had yeah. some of the experience of this. They're very different cultures. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I oh, know you know yourself. Like Trinity had a policy for these roles when they started hiring them. 2008, 2007, I was the first person they hired in this role. And they had a policy that you had to have a PhD, which was unique in Ireland. But it meant that... It, it was a metric to say that at least you understood the academic mm-hmm. uh, value system. Yeah. You know, the whole idea of publication and research for research sake and fundamental research. And so that was good. And, you know, we're all about building a relationship with PIs, you know, principal investigators, as they're called in the business, as you know. And we really strongly try to build personal relationships and trust with them that they know that we're from... You know, yeah, we're from the big bad world of capitalism and uh, entrepreneurship and innovation. And, you know, if but we can help them if we want, if they're willing to engage or if their funding scheme that they have received funding from SFI or EI or Europe, you know, there there is a requirement very often to commercialize where possible. Mm-hmm. And so that's where we help. But we don't force... You know, I still, I wouldn't have believed this 10 years ago, but when I started, I would have been anti-fundamental research, to be honest, and mm-hmm. in Ireland, you know, with the unique kind of Ireland wants to be a knowledge economy. So I would have said, no, we, we've, we can't afford to be doing fundamental research. Leave that to, you know, yeah. CERN to build a, a, you know, a Halon Collider, you know, for billions and billions. Ireland has to kind of, plow its furrow closer to commercial research but now i think the pendulum has actually gone too far and you know the provost paddy prendergast in trinity has been saying this recently and i i never thought i would but i do agree with 
would, would agree now that we need to emphasize a little bit more back to fundamental research through the European Research Council and various funding mechanisms, because Ireland has missed out. Say, for example, you might have, everybody would have a feeling, but I think quantum computing, for example, we have very little in Ireland now in quantum computing of mm -hmm. any. I think there's some stuff in UCD. We have a few people now in physics and statistics looking at it and have done stuff. Mm. But, you know, it could be quantum computing is becoming a thing, a real yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah, I, I don't understand it myself. You don't, how does it work? I mean, what? Uh, well, uh, if you told me that, but I, before I came on, I wouldn't. You know what? It's, I, I don't understand it either. I did quantum mechanics. In, I did physics. I did applied physics and I did a module in quantum physics. I, and I actually did quite well in it for some reason. Um, but I think it's good to know it's the known unknowns. But I do, I do like, I do get some of it. Like when you talk about quantum entanglement and qubits and all that, that gets very complex. But I do understand, for example, quantum annealing in a way. I can vision it in some way that, you know, that's a way of finding a solution to a problem and using physical, mm. using quantum properties that you can find the most stable quantum states and measure it. And that's equivalent mm. to the, pro I mean, I'm not explaining it very well because I don't understand it, mm. but uh, it's, you know, I mean, that's, I'm not going down that route. Okay. Okay. <laughs> that's fine. So John, you have a really good experience of successful, even very successful spin outs from Trinity that became grown up real yes. companies. Is was there anything about them that was that you thought was different that made them successful? Was it the people? Yeah. Was it the opportunity? Yeah, you know what? I think you cannot predict. I, I've seen really? it in the last 12 years and I've seen stuff that I would say, first of all, even that the opportunity isn't good. The people aren't good and they go on and have huge success. Huh. And I mean, it's, it's, and then the ones that you think should succeed, you can't, you know, you just can't predict the future. You just try to help. And, you know, I do a lot of, I've done a lot of research just for myself and I give a talk on it sometimes internally on traits of an entrepreneur, you know, mm -hmm. and it's, it's about, it's about the team. You know, there's a great Steve Collins from Havoc and Swerve and now in Frontline, ex-Trinity guy. He he gave a talk once where he said, I love this, that uh, technology, you know, your probability of success, like P's, P.S. is proportional oh, yeah. to technology to the power of one. You know, so technology is important, mm -hmm. but team to the power of two. So wow. team is so a balanced team. There's loads of research about you know, you need a technical person, you need a business person, you need different types of personalities. And traction to the power of three, though. Mm. If you start to get any traction, and then I added one to my, being facetious, I added one myself when I talk about it. I say timing to the power of four, you know. Oh, that's brilliant, John. Because we, it's so frustrating in our job. We see stuff that, and it's usually by definition, and it should be, you know, research in a research institution, you know, it's it's ahead of the game, and sometimes they're too early. I always think of a guy, Michael Mansky, in computer science. You know, ten years ago, he was talking about using FPGA, you know, hardware to accelerate graphics yeah. uh, for ray tracing. You know, he built this whole kit. It was funded by Enterprise Ireland, but you know, that it was it just kind of faded away. We protected it, 
but there was no opportunity. And a couple of years ago, I was at a conference and I saw Amazon presenting and Amazon web services now have a hardware based yeah. ray tracing FPGA, you know, so yeah, hey, look, it was so, eight years ahead. So no, that, that is amazing. And, and so I'm sure that was tough, you know, when, when you look at it, but okay, go to that, go through the Whelan model again. Okay. So, <laughs> just for the, the Collins Whelan model. Okay, I'm sure Steve Collins. got it from somewhere else. I don't think it doesn't uh, matter. I mean, so, so it's people to the power of one. No, no, uh, technology to the power one. Technology yeah. to the power one, go. Yeah, people, team, they're all four Ts. It's easy right. to remember, Pat. Okay, I'm a bit slow. <laughs> yeah. A bit slow, John. Yeah, uh, technology to the power of one. You know, so many times researchers think, and lots of people think that technology is everything. It's hugely important. And I mean, obviously, but proportionality of success. And then, yeah, team to the power of two. Then traction, if you have any traction to the power of three. And then timing to the power of four. Brilliant. It's like, it, it like equation. I love, there's a few, I love these simple equations. There's another one I heard, and I heard it on Harvard Business Review podcast, HBR podcast, which is great. And they were talking to a guy, a Silicon Valley, you know, a guy, I can't remember his name, but he was from Andreessen Horowitz. So, he, and he was a life sciences investor. But he said, uh, when you invest in a company, because they were, actually, it was great, article because our item because it was talking about how life sciences need to think more like it like mm -hmm. anyway we can park that but he said that the valuation in silicon valley of a company is based if you ever got a good developer it's a, a million roughly per developer yeah. I used to hear that it was a million per data scientist, but now he's just saying it's just per software developer. If you've got a good software developer, the valuation goes up by a million. But he said, and I hope you don't have an MBA now, Pat, do you? I, I do. <laughs> you I do, do. <laughs> yeah. So I always qualify this, but he said, and this is kind of facetious. Minus but, he said, but he said, if, you, if you've got an MBA, it's a reduction by 500,000 valuation. <laughs> so I, that's I facetious that. now. It's, it's, a, it's one of those Silicon Valley things, but I know, um, but it's it's the, these things are just the health you think about, or maybe yeah. like particularly in in the uh, Collins Wheeler model. I think yeah. you're, I think you've nailed it in a, a lot of ways. That's because my own experience too. I've done projects, actually, particularly good project did with DCU, but it was ahead of the market, and yeah. it was in right now with Brexit and COVID, it would be a fantastic product. Yeah. But, yeah, uh, yeah. Anyway, yeah, I mean, and one of the other traits that I really like, and again, I saw it from Harvard research, Harvard Business School research, and I think for researchers, this is a really good one, is tolerance of ambiguity. Mm. Uh, because science and, you know, technical engineering, anything, they don't teach you to, you don't like ambiguity. You want to prove everything. You want to verify everything. You want complete data. And you don't want to be making taking a punt, but in business you have to take a punt. So mm. to be able to, you know, make a decision based on incomplete data is a real business skill. And I somebody told me that earlier on in the day. And it's it's like if you're going to paint the wall in an office, don't think about all you know all these colors. Just say pick a color. At the end of the day, you have to make a choice, yeah. and don't procrastinate. You know because you'll be left behind. Well, that's, that's, uh, you know, John, I, that's a very good point. So I, when I started out, I was an engineer and I worked in development for years. And I, to be honest, I didn't have much time for salespeople. Oh, yeah, um, that's it, that's true. Neither did I. Yeah. yeah, until I had to sell. Yeah. Uh, and then I, I realized it wasn't quite as easy and so on and so on. 
but I won't say I'm a great sales guy, but you have to live with ambiguity in sales. You know, it's, oh, yeah. it's a risk management process in some ways. It's a relationship building process, but there's no certain outcome. You have to live yeah, with ambiguity yeah. maybe, and you can maybe do for a long time. Like, we, you know, we did a lot. Of, I've done a lot of sales courses of the, over the years and you get something out of it. Everybody has a different angle and some, some stuff doesn't match your personality and some stuff does. And I remember we would have done, we, I think we did some stuff jointly together with mm-hmm. executive venture partners. I remember some guy burning money in front of us. Were you at that? <laughs> he burned a, a five pound note or something, you know, or a five euro note might have been, but it was some, you know, but you do get takeaways from these things. Training like executive training like that is very interesting because you always get something from it. Mm-hmm. Oh, that was um, yeah. I think it was Paul Lanningan, wasn't it? Of Sadler, Sadler training. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Actually, I, I know Paul. He's a great guy. And yeah, that is uh, that's that was the guy. Yeah, I remember yeah. that. And sometimes I talk. Sometimes I talk to him. And again, he's got that totally different view. That you know, I go away and think about what he said. He's, he, he's. I think having mentorship, maybe more than one mentor, is important, particularly if you're an entrepreneur, because you tend to be in a small team and yeah get group think and so on you know so it's it's good oh, to yeah. go out and talk to people yeah like we have mentors you know i set up launchbox a student accelerator in trinity and we had a lot of mentors coming in we and we like we have lots of mentors for the kind of deep tech startups from trinity research and innovation where i'm based and they all have different approaches and and that's what I would have I remember always telling the students before a mentor would come in even though this person is hugely successful it doesn't necessarily mean they're right you know and they can be very fixed and very have strong views on their because their life experience this worked Uh, but it mightn't work for you you know persistence yeah another trait obviously persistence is highly valued likability is another one that comes up an awful lot Mm. I liked and coachability Coachability is one that VCs always talk about. That you you want somebody that's really impassioned and really believes and really headstrong, but they have to be willing to listen to other people and listen to advice and realize if if they're doing something that isn't working to change it and be coachable. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's not a great trait among entrepreneurs as a general comment on the ones yeah. I've known. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but that's one. You know, I I I really I, I really went through a lot of kind of business school reports and business school publications to try and find out what the traits of an entrepreneur were and sos ventures actually were very interesting there's uh they showed me what they do in their accelerator they you know they do the personality tests you know these briggs you know the 16 personalities you know there's lots of skepticism around that but but they the analogy the metaphor they use they compared it with star trek and they said, it, you, want to have, you want to have the four kind of types of people that Star Trek had. You know, you need the leader of Captain Kirk. And they had, a, you know, they really used, deployed this. They had mm-hmm. graphics. They did the, these personality. You know, you need a leader of Captain Kirk. You need the, the engineer of Scotty, the technical person. You need the real logical person like Captain Spock. Again, very technical. But you also needed empathy in, in bones. You needed somebody to empathy, to run a team. And they map all their startups on the Breyers mix and to, to make sure they've got a spread across the cohort. Now, in the accelerator, not necessarily, you're not going to get it all in a startup yeah. team, but across yeah. the cohort to make sure that they're investing 
Um, yeah, yeah, that's very interesting. Wisely. Yeah. Listen, John, you've been a great guest on the podcast, and I, I think there's an awful lot of uh, stuff you've talked about there that maybe we could revisit at another stage. But uh, at this stage in the podcast, I always ask people if, they, if there's a song they'd like to play out on. So I don't oh, know yeah. if you had a chance to think something up. Oh, yeah, you did. Uh, I just like Desert Island Discs. I love that. <laughs> I love, um, I love that. That's a great show. But uh, no, the one I thought of, because I've been, before you asked me, I had been playing it recently, is. Equinox Part 5 by Jean-Michel Gerard, yeah, right? Yeah, 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 From yeah. 1978. And I remembered this because it used to be on TV, a lot of documentaries talking. Remember there was a documentary in the late 70s? You're not as old as I am, maybe, but it was uh, called The Mighty Micro. And it was it was on RTE. I lived in single channel land, Balakain, <laughs> and uh, in Limerick. And... It was fantastic documentary because it was all about the silicon chip and the power of processors and what was going to happen and predict, mm-hmm. you know, in 78. But the team, or the, well, maybe it wasn't the team, but they often played this music when they're shown silicon chips being manufactured, mm-hmm. our technology. And it's 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 a fantastic piece of music for the technology because there's a technical side, how he was able to create this these sounds with analog type computing yeah. back in the day synthesizers so yeah I, thanks brilliant. thanks for having me pat really no, enjoyed no. it no you've been a brilliant brilliant guest john thanks and i will you go out on jamie shall yeah yeah <laughs>